0: Um, you know, China has um, serious and significant outstanding territorial disputes with its neighbors. Uh, six today in total, just over sort of territorial sovereignty and sort of more if you want to include maritime rights and jurisdiction. Uh, China's actually had many more territorial disputes. It's had a total of 23. So the good news here, right? China has settled uh, the majority of its territorial disputes, and that matters because Sort of basic research in, in international relations and political science shows that states are more likely to fight over territory than anything else.
1: This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod.
2: Welcome to the Asia Insight podcast series by the National Bureau of Asian Research. My name is Carlos Karnikis, I'm a senior vice president at NBR, and I also serve as technical director of NBR's Maritime Awareness Project. In today's episode, I have the pleasure and honor of being joined by Taylor Fravel. Taylor is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science at MIT, and director of the MIT Security Studies Program. Uh, Taylor also has a role here at NBR where he serves as the principal investigator for our Maritime Awareness Project. Uh, we're also joined today by my NBR colleague, John Van Odenaar. Uh, John, uh, maybe you could say a few words about your work here at NBR.
1: Thanks. I'm John Van Odenaar, an assistant director with the political and security affairs team here at NBR. and I uh, manage the Maritime Awareness Project.
2: Well, before we begin, I'd like to thank the Korea Foundation for its support for the Maritime Awareness Project and for this podcast series. And I'd also like to say a few words about Taylor, and uh, maybe I'll use a baseball analogy. Um, In baseball, when certain players come to the plate, you always make sure to watch them hit. And for me, Taylor is kind of like that. When he writes something or when he tweets something, I make sure to read it. Uh, Taylor's uh, very active on Twitter so if you aren't already following him I encourage you to do so uh, Taylor we really appreciate all of the excellent uh, research and analysis that you do you're certainly one of the leading specialists in the field um, and and something else we appreciate and we care a lot about this at NBR we appreciate the great work you do helping to train the next generation of Asia security specialists
0: Great. Thank you, Carl. That's
2: very kind. Thank you again for being here. Well, the uh, inspiration for today's podcast goes back to an article you wrote for Foreign Affairs Magazine a few months ago. The article was titled China's Sovereignty Obsession. Now, that article focused on a recent border dispute between China and India, But this notion of a sovereignty obsession intrigued us and we thought we'd explore this concept with you in the maritime domain and specifically on how it impacts Chinese decision making in the South and East China seas. Uh, But before we do that, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to this phrase and what exactly you mean when you say that China has a sovereignty obsession?
0: Sure. Great. So, uh, thank you, um, Carlos. Thanks, everyone at MBR. It's a real pleasure uh, to, to be here today. Uh, I have a confession to make, which is that th- this uh, uh, or, or the title "Sovereignty Obsession" was not mine. It was uh, from the editors of Foreign Affairs. So they had asked me to write an article on the China-India border. And I wrote an article, I wrote a manuscript or a draft for them on the China india border and it came back with this new title China's sovereignty obsession. (laughs) Um, So I can't take any credit for it. Um, But of course, it does reflect, uh, I think the importance uh, that uh, China does highlight uh, to uh, its uh, sovereignty claims. I, I personally may not have used the word obsession, but I guess it makes good copy and. This is how headlines get written, and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, certainly, right in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, uh, China India border, Taiwan, Bhutan, um, you know, China has um, serious and significant outstanding territorial disputes with its neighbors. Uh, six today in total, just over sort of territorial sovereignty, and sort of more if you want to include maritime rights and jurisdiction. Uh, China's actually had many more territorial disputes. It's had a total of 23. So the good news here, right? China has settled uh, the majority of its territorial disputes. And that matters because sort of basic research in, in international relations and political science shows that states are more likely to fight over territory than anything else. So, anytime two states can remove a territorial dispute between them, that's like good news for peace and stability. Uh, So, China had a lot. It's a big country with many neighbors on land and at sea. Uh, And and it has steadily reduced uh, those disputes over time. However, there are still six disputes. Uh, Taiwan is is sort of the largest and most important of which, perhaps the one that is most likely to escalate uh, to violence. But also, we have seen uh, violence on the China India border. And certainly uh, in recent years, a lot of tension um in uh, the maritime uh, disputes as well and so uh, these are a concern because presumably these disputes remain because they were the hardest ones for china to settle or ones where they thought the stakes were very high and they couldn't afford uh, to compromise as as they had uh done in others and so what what we see more generally right under xi jinping is that uh, after he sort of became general secretary in 2012 uh, he articulated this concept of the china dream uh, in early like I guess it was late two thousand twelve and early two thousand thirteen as part of the China dream, he then drew attention really to the importance of of sovereignty for China, uh, not sort of giving up one inch of territories as he said more more recently, I believe when u s defense secretary uh, james mattis mattis visited uh, But we see uh, you know overall in the last seven to eight years in China right uh, just a much more kind of strident approach to defending its sovereignty claims. Um, many of these actions are probably well, or, or very familiar to your listeners, and most notably, um, or most visibly, right, uh, the, the building of artificial islands atop the seven uh, reefs and low tide elevations that China uh, has controlled in the South China Sea since the late 1980s and early 1990s, then transforming three on their on the reefs known as Fiery Cross, uh, Suebian Mischief Reefs into really significant um, military uh, forward operating bases complete with you know, ten thousand foot runways, hardened shelters for you know squadrons of fighter aircraft, perhaps some bombers, uh, high bay, hardened high bay shelters for anti ship and anti surface, anti ship and anti air missile systems, and so on and so forth, right? And so, I, I do not think anything? Really, says sovereignty more than going out, right? Dredging up uh, a coral, building <laughs> islands, right? Because land is really the epitome of sovereignty <laughs> in the maritime space, and then transforming them into these. Uh, you know, significant military installation, such that they really are a symbol of, I think, you know, how uh, important or, or how important these disputes are to China, not just for national security reasons, but also as we may talk uh, more about later in our conversation in terms of, I think kind of uh, China's uh, sort of status in the region uh, as well as kind of the legitimacy of the party in front of its own people.
2: It's interesting, though, because certainly uh, over the years we've seen China use these disputes, whether with Japan or Taiwan, for domestic political purposes. Uh, But you note in your article that the political messaging regarding this border dispute with India, or at least these recent skirmishes, uh, was more for the Chinese elite um, and perhaps uh, external audiences. Uh, could you speak a little bit about that? I I found that intriguing.
0: So yeah, you know, the, the the foreign affairs piece uh, was really just about, or mostly about uh, the China India war, and because uh, sort of China's first moves occurred in late April and early May, really when the virus in China was not fully contained, when the economy looked like it would not recover in the way that it has. That I think the initial explanation for why China moved against India was to kind of rally folks around the flag, perhaps divert attention from uh, the mishandling of the pandemic and all the aftershocks associated with you know significant economic retrenchment but or there's always a the but, but um, there was basically no attention or discussion of the Chinese media, which is like a precondition for diversion right if, like you're engaging in some sort of foreign adventure to divert attention you got to kind of uh, whip up the public at home through a, a, a PR campaign, and that was completely absent. In fact, what's even interesting is that most Ch- Chinese, I think, you know, were ba- most Chinese experts were basically, or they would appear to have been muzzled in a way that such that there was really no writing on on what happened you know, in mid June with the deadly clash of Gao until sometime in July. And that, it was as if this gag order was lifted, and then many more things were published. But it was really tightly held, and so it's hard to come to the conclusion that China had. Uh, principally pursued this action to divert attention and even and it didn't even really try to gain you know secondary benefits if that or if that wasn't kind of the main reason for doing so Now more generally though, I guess with sovereignty disputes under Xi Jinping there, there is this interesting dynamic on the one hand, I think through the China dream and sort of these very sort of tough sounding statements and not compromising at all, I think she is kind of drawn the public's attention more to these questions of sovereignty. Uh, while at the same time, perhaps tying uh, uh, China's hands in terms of what the c- what compromises it can do, because you have a more aware of public and thus compromises our policy for the leadership. But on the other hand, we don't see uh, specific actions of assertiveness in response to kind of an increase in public demand for China to do something. And so there's some interesting episodes in, I uh, want you know around Scarborough Shoal. I think again with the the Haiyang 981 oil rig standoff incident where. There were kind of you know on the, on the Chinese you know a Weibo sphere so to speak that there were sort of increased demands uh, for China to take stronger action that it didn't and so we still see I think the government uh, in my view has a lot of leeway with respect to how hard it will will push these um, and, and is not really beholden to public opinion except to the extent that I think it does make it harder for China to uh, engage in Significant concessions without some kind of countervailing uh, payment or compensation from the other side. And so we're at this point now, right? Where China is in general pushing hard on sovereignty, continuing to bolster its claims, whether it's the Coast Guard patrols within 12 nautical miles of the Sentakus, the presence in the contiguous zone, everything that goes on in the South China Sea and what we've seen on the border. Um, and I think that, you know, it is probably a product of, of, The way in which she has highlighted sovereignty such that you're going to see kind of this pressure but i think there i think you know um the government in china or the party right the communist party in china has reasons for kind of doing this that are part of uh, their image within the country but not necessarily a response to kind of greater demands from the public
1: i wanted to kind of ask um, do different disputes? Because around the same time of the China-India dispute, or a little bit before, you know, had you had, I think you mentioned the Haiyang uh, DJ incident with uh, Malaysia, and then uh, tensions with Vietnam. Do different disputes have kind of different domestic audience costs uh, for Beijing, and, and maybe is there more public attention uh, attached to say the South China Sea or the East China Sea than the, than the India-China dispute? So
0: I think, in general, right, there's I think there's greater public knowledge of the maritime disputes, both East China Sea and South China Sea, because of the way in which uh, they are so sort, of, sort of publicly conducted, as well as all of the various you know imagery that is available about them, uh, and also in part because of the attention that the actors draw to them. And so I think these are really the disputes that have probably captivated the publics. Attention. And in the case of the Spratleys in the South China Sea it was really quite a deliberate effort by the PLA Navy after it occupied six uh, reefs and features in 1988 to really draw attention to their success in defending Chinese sovereignty. Not coincidentally, at a time that they were uh, pushing hard uh, to shift to uh, a near seas uh, strategy and to really start, you know, modernizing what at the time was a very outdated navy. But I think one set of disputes does stand out, uh, and that would be the disputes with Japan. Because simply the way in which Japan, I think, is viewed in China in the context of uh, of the history of uh, Japan's effort to conquer China in the Second World War uh, means that I think from sort of a nationalist perspective and a public opinion perspective, in some ways that is uh, the most salient. Um or the one over which I think is most easily for the public to be mobilized or to get mobilized. Uh, a professor at Cornell, Jessica Chen Weiss has this book on kind of China's nationalist mobilization, which is a terrific book. I, I recommend everyone read it. Um, and it looks at anti-form protests. And what you, you see when you read the book is far and away. I, I believe it's the most frequent. It's really the largest anti-form protests all have involved Japan that's not a coincidence now you might think it would be taiwan but i know taiwan is a much trickier situation where you know taiwanese is probably antithetical to your own view of your national interests. it's still there you know from the chinese point of mainly the chinese point of the sense of one china right and such that uh whenever uh mainland is unhappy happy with taiwan it's not, it, it always highlights specific leaders and or perhaps individuals whatever it might be and sort of single them out for for, for their bad behavior but there's a sense right that it's still you know you know, Chinese on both sides of the Strait, and thus it doesn't really play. It's, I mean, it, it. it's more important at a deeper level for Chinese national, but I'm not sure uh, it's as prone to mobilization. Uh, or, or perhaps uh, the leadership in Beijing views that it would be so costly to mobilize over Taiwan uh, if they weren't uh, sort of successful in achieving their objectives that sort of tend to shy away from. It. Japan is kind of a much easier. Uh, sort of a foil in that regard. And this is true even in the United States, right? You know, public opinion often follows what elites have to say. Um, I mean, we, I think not to get political, you can cut this out if you want, but if we look at um, the events of the last, you know, few months in this effort that the election was stolen, it wasn't like a, an idea that people came up with on their own. It was an idea that you know, political leaders were you know, repeating, you know, every hour of every day and over time, right, people tend to. Sort of follow cues that 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 leaders give them, uh, which is to say that because China has, you know, attached a lot of sovereignty to China and has talked about it a lot, the public is also certainly sort, of, sort, of, sort of quite um, focused on.
2: Looking at uh, China's claims in the South China Sea, of course, there was this arbitration case back in 2016 brought by the Philippines against China concerning its broader claims, including its so-called nine dash line and the tribunal ruled against china and against these historical claims Uh, since the ruling has china changed how it justifies its claims in the south china sea now that it has been clearly established that these claims are at odds with international law
0: right and so 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 the tribunal is brought by the philippines to uh Based upon fifteen claims it had against the china or sort of referred to as submissions and um, this had a lot to do with china's behavior in the china sea. Um, but two uh, areas in particular that were really the crux of the ruling were whether or not uh, China's claim to historic rights, although it was not clearly specified at the time of the, uh, of the tribunal, was consistent uh, with um The UN Convention of the Law of the Sea or not, and then secondarily, whether or not any of the land features that are part of the Spratly Islands uh, were uh, islands as defined by the Convention, such that uh, whoever controlled the island or had sovereignty over the island would be entitled to a two hundred nautical mile EEZ around uh, that land feature. And I think the most powerful uh, elements of the ruling were that first, when China joined UNCLOS, it basically Gave up any residual claims to historic rights. So, uh, as a matter of almost general principle, it would seem, although I'm not an international lawyer, uh, the tribunal found that historic rights overall are basically inconsistent uh, with the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and that even if you have claims to historic rights when states do join and then ratify the convention, They have to give up or relinquish uh, those claims to historic rights. Now, there are a few exceptions relating to fishermen within 12 nautical miles, but the general idea that China could somehow claim uh, special uh, uh, rights within the entire area enclosed by the nine dash line, which is what many people believe to be the limits of China's historic uh, rights claim to the South China Sea, was invalidated by the tribunal. And so, this was a very um, uh, significant. A uh, ruling uh, it was it was sort of clear and robust in, in, in what it found and also uh, certainly if one was doing it in terms of Chinese versus Philippine interest basically uh, sided with the Philippines and against China. Now, uh, China um, doesn't accept the ruling, right? It didn't. Uh, it, it, it never agreed to re- basically acknowledge it refused to participate in uh, both phases. The 1st phase was when uh, the panel of judges would be. Um, uh, selected, and then they would meet to determine whether or not there is they even had jurisdiction right to hear the submissions uh, presented by the Philippines. And then in the second phase, when they would basically assess the merit of these submissions. And China to refused to participate in all of this, which turns out, I think, to have been a significant mistake by China. And even if they didn't want to participate in the merits phase, had they participated in the first phase, they would have actually been able to choose one of the five judges and help shape the selection of s- some of the other judges, such that. Uh, They may have, you know, basically been able to choose judges that would be uh, most favorably inclined uh, to their position. So China all along uh, said it would never recognize uh, the tribunal, uh, true to form. Uh, uh, When uh, the tribunal issued its ruling in June two thousand, sorry, in July two thousand sixteen, it issued a statement clarifying its claims in the South China Sea to include. Um, not just its uh, claim to the various land features and the parasols and the spratleys in particular, but also that it would claim the territorial sea from all of these features, and most importantly, it would claim the exclusive economics from all of these features. And then finally, it also said it did claim historic rights from these features, which was or did claim historic rights in the South China Sea, which was actually the first time it had put historic rights into a formal document, apart from the 19. 19- uh, 92, sorry, the 1998 uh, EEZ law uh, that uh, China had passed. And so China since then has worked very hard to delegitimate uh, the tribunal. Uh, so in 2000, I it was late 2017 or maybe 2018, there was a, a report from the Chinese Society of International Law. I believe it's sort of 500 pages long, which was their sort of line by line representation of the tribunal rulings. And then more recently, the National Institute for South China Sea Studies in Hainan, under Wu Shizhuan, issued their own uh, rebuttal of uh, the triangle. And so I think uh, there has been this effort by China to uh, basically uh, try trying to, in essence, uh, declare that certainly from their perspective, it's null and void, but also to persuade others uh, of the virtues of the arguments that they presented. And the irony here, of course, is China could have presented all of these arguments, had it participated in, and thus uh, shape the outcome. Why this matters, I think, though, for the South Tennessee today is that, you know, one significant development in the last 12 months has been a series of sort of letters to the United Nations, which were called note revolved by all of the main other claimants basically siding with the tribunal, um, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's not binding upon them. And then, of course, in uh, this past summer, uh, this, this, the secretary of state, Michael Pompeo also, Made a declaration that US, the United States was formally aligning its policy or its view of claims in the South China Sea with the tribunal. Uh, I think Pompeo tried to sort of portray this as a new US policy when in fact it was simply reaffirming kind of positions that had been taken earlier, but it was sort of introduced with a significant amount of flair for pushing back against China. And the US had pushed back on or the US had, had aligned itself with the tribunal earlier, but just not as publicly and not as forcefully and not sort of in such a detailed manner. But uh, the, the point here is that, right, the I think from the perspective of other claimants in the South China Sea, which is important from the perspective of the United States, whatever efforts China may be pursuing to kind of weaken the effect of the tribunal or, or, or to create conditions such that it's not viewed as a way of kind of assessing what are legitimate claims has not been successful.
1: I guess maybe sticking on the Uh, With the U.S. policy there for for a second, what are kind of the policy options that you see for the U.S. in the South China Sea, not just in the legal, but also the security dimension? And then specifically within that resuscitation or the continuation, I guess, of freedom of navigation patrols or FONOPS or presence patrols, do those matter? Do you see those having an impact in the situation in the South China Sea? So kind of a a two-part question there.
0: Sure, so I think from, um, I mean, I think it's too soon to say what the specific Biden administration approach uh, will be, uh, but certainly one would expect a degree of continuity with U.S. policy. Uh, so going back to the the tribunal, which we certainly just talked about, right, it's the case that the, the, the first effort to sort of align the United States with the rule that occurred in late 2016 under the Obama administration before the transfer of power this was continued under the trump administration i think will be continued um, under uh, a biden administration as well and so you know what so one set of policies would be basically would be sort of focusing on international legal interpretations and there i think it's going to be pretty clear the question then is what does the united states do if it if, if China kind of uh, systematically uh, sort of acts in ways that are inconsistent with the principles laid out in the tribunal sort of basically pursues what would be defined as illegitimate claims. I mean, there are many different things the United States can do. Uh, where, where the US was moving uh, in the summer of, of 2020 was to uh, use naval assets, not just in terms of freedom of navigation operations or presence operations, but also to kind of loiter in the exclusive economic zones of Malaysia and Vietnam, either in the case of Malaysia to sort of uh, shadow, uh, a shadow of Malaysian contracted grid that was drilling in Malaysian waters, but was also being um, uh, sort of monitored and perhaps at times harassed by of coast guard vessels. At the same time, China had sent their own survey vessel in. Also, in in Vietnam, uh, sort of a littoral co- a U.S. Navy littoral combat ship uh, was photographed in, in very close proximity to a Chinese contracted survey vessel uh, that was uh, conducting a seismic survey in Vietnamese waters. And so these were sort of subtle, but public. Efforts to indicate that the U.S. was uh, doing more than just sort of uh, rhetorically aligning itself with the with the um, tribunal findings, but also moving uh, closer to uh, not necessarily uh, directly confronting Chinese vessels, but certainly kind of highlighting the U.S. stake in in allowing uh, Vietnam and Malaysia in these cases, right, to exercise uh, what I think the U.S. policy would say would be their lawful rights within their EEZs. Um, I think there's great room for uh, bilateral cooperation in other areas, especially in uh, maritime domain awareness, and and perhaps uh, more efforts, such as uh, we saw last summer, in terms of shadowing Chinese vessels or escorting um, uh, the vessels from littoral states if they're exercising their lawful rights, uh, and so on and so forth, just as a way of kind of, I think, underscoring what the U.S. position is. I think in terms of freedom of navigation operations, I would certainly expect a Biden administration to continue them. Uh, the question would be simply the frequency with which they happen, and if they uh, w- will maintain the same pattern as was put in place starting at the end of the Obama administration, carried through the Trump administration of uh, uh, publicizing these operations when they do. Some experts, and I would align myself with this group, believe that publicizing each and every one is is not necessarily always the most productive uh, uh, approach, simply because it sort of tends to elicit a negative response uh, from China. That may not necessarily create more space for bringing about a kind of a diplomatic kind of resolution or modus vivendi. And that there's no requirement that these operations sort of be publicized necessarily to be effective, right? They're operational assertions of navigational rights. They're, really, they, they're not deterrence operations, uh, which would bring us to the next class of military operations, I think, which would be uh, presence, uh, broadly defined to include transits. Uh, both uh, on the water and in the air, uh, as well as exercises, patrols, and whatever in the United States would view as uh, a lawful within uh, an American interpretation of the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. I certainly expect that to continue, uh, not um, in, in, probably as, as part of a broader approach to maintain sort of uh, a peacetime naval presence in East Asia, which would include the South China Sea. Uh, and the question here will simply be the frequency um, and kind of way in which that's conducted. You know, there 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 are different ways countries can assert uh, their uh, rights to freedom of navigation under the convention. One is, in particular, to the United States, which are these freedom of navigation operations. But the other, is simply to navigate as you believe you are entitled to do, right, without necessarily uh, crafting it into a, a formalized process that includes a démarche To the target state and so forth, that is part of the freedom of navigation operations program.
2: I have a follow on question regarding the involvement of other navies, other countries, France, Britain, uh, Japan, and so forth. Could you speak a little bit about their involvement to date and what you think their role might be going forward?
0: Various times in the last couple of years, uh, Britain, British vessels, I think a French vessel, and Australian vessel have mm. either conducted uh, something that has been called a Freedom of Navigation Operation or. These are sort of a de facto freedom of navigation operation by uh, transiting uh, within 12 nautical miles of uh, Chinese claimed features, uh, because in this zone, China requires uh, foreign military vessels to gain permission. And I think this was a part of a deliberate uh, effort to uh, kind of rally uh, sort of international support around uh, the principle of freedom of navigation uh, by uh, encouraging. Uh, Sort of like-minded powers, and most in this case mostly from uh, Europe as well as Australia, to uh, exercise the same kind of rights that the United States was exercising. Uh, And so, from China's point of view, of course, this was further quote internationalization of the influence by bringing in uh, powers from outside the region. Uh, But I think from a U.S. perspective, and I think from perspective of many other seafaring countries, by freedom of navigation is a global principle. Uh, it's not a regional principle. It's not a principle that's applied just you know in one body of water like the South China Sea. And I think uh, you know for these states, right, the sort of challenges to freedom navigation, to yeah. so any country's right to exercise its uh, sort of uh, ability to navigate freedom under the convention, is sort of a challenge you know globally. And so, like, have to have to keep exercising this right in order for it to remain something that is is sort of respected and acknowledged. And of course. In, 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 these are countries that all uh, are, you know, still pretty significant size navies. Although, mm-hmm. in the case of all three, they're they're now smaller than the Chinese navy. And finally, I believe Britain announced it was going to send its carrier to the South China Sea, uh, either this year or next year, uh, once it <laughs> is fully kind of fitted out and completed all of its sea trials. And so there's a sense, right, that through these operations by, you know, countries that are not necessarily as as forward deployed in Asia as the United States is a little. France uh, is a little bit, uh, to some degree, that, that this is viewed as that, direct, that the South Sea is viewed as an international waterway and will be treated mm. as such. And this does you know, clearly uh, work against uh, the general idea of historic rights, which although China has still not yet formally defined them, could include uh, some uh, some claim to navigational rights such that it would really no longer be an international waterway. And so I think that is probably one of the major motivations behind countries like France and Germany and Australia are participating in these kinds of activities or or in similar things.
2: We should also mention that these operations, uh, while we talk a lot about them happening in the South China Sea, they are happening in other places, um, in other waters all all around the world. And uh, I think that's important to note.
0: Yeah, Thank you for mentioning. The only thing I would say that's specific to the South China Sea is this is the one Area of the world where the U.S. publicizes mm-hmm. individual operations. Yeah, that's interesting too. Yeah, Contemporaneously and not in a very kind of sparsely populated table that the right. DOD issues uh, at the end of every year to summarizing right. where operations occurred and what, what the yeah. components
2: were. We have a few other items we'd like to get to. Um, we've been reading a lot recently about increased activity around Pratas Island, uh, including. China's incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. And I'm wondering if you could share with us any insights you have as to what's been happening there. And maybe before doing that, just any background you could provide about this feature. Pradus Island
0: is actually the fourth of the four groups of South China Sea islands. Sometimes you see this reference to the four Shahs or the four sands, and Produ is one of them. but it is it is uh, located. Basically, southwest of the southern tip of Taiwan, and then, uh, I guess, a little bit sort of southeast off the coast of uh, China has uh, been un, under, uh, or it, it is, and has always been at least uh, recently, uh, maybe since the end of the Second World War, been under uh, China. Sorry, excuse me, been under Taiwan's control, um, and so. Uh, this is sort of one feature right that sort of bridges the you know Taiwan and the South China Sea in a very interesting way uh, because it is located uh, so far south it 's not the southernmost feature uh, right, that Taiwan controls that would be Ituaba in sort of the center of those you know, Spratleys, and incidentally the one feature that most people thought was actually an island. Going back to the tribunal, uh, it turns out that Taiwan also opposed uh, uh, these aspects of the tribunal's ruling most importantly the fact that. The feature under control, uh, which you know more than any other, I had kind of look and feel as something that might be an island, was not deemed an island, and that's Taiwan lost um, right a claim to an easy around uh, you know 200 nautical miles from that point, which is what roughly 125,000 square nautical miles. So I like the joke that it's not really a joke, but I like to say at least that right the South Tennessee disputes are basically the world's most complicated disputes, and this is just <laughs> another layer by which it's complicated. Now, produce, um has come under, I guess, closer attention recently because of one episode by which uh, China uh, blocked flights from uh, landing uh, on Pradas from Taiwan to resupply produce, uh because of uh, sort of entry into uh, a flight information region uh, controlled uh, from uh, mainland China. And this was seen as potentially an escalation of China, mainland China's efforts to squeeze Taiwan's international space in a much more significant way, not necessarily by competing with uh, Taiwan for diplomatic recognition of the you know, remaining countries that recognize Taiwan as the Republic of China and don't recognize the People's Republic of China. Uh, by, in essence, asserting you know, a right over uh, territory that has long been under Taiwan's uh, control to basically determine who can and cannot go there. I don't actually know all of the details behind or why China decided uh, to take this action. It did occur at a time when there's much I think, greater concern uh, on mainland China about um, sort of Taiwan from their perspective to include the ways in which uh, the US uh, policy was changing uh, in sort of the spring and summer of 2020 to become a much, cl- much closer to Taiwan. Also, with very high-level visits, including um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services and an Undersecretary of State, and also, you know, at around this time, uh, China uh, was uh, conducting a series of very uh, you know, uh, aggressive and unprecedented uh, flights into Taiwan's air defense identification zone, but most importantly, across the so-called median line. And on several occasions over the summer, right, you had entire strike packages to include fighters, in a few cases, bombers, surveillance aircraft flying in, in groups across the median line, uh, as well as entering into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. And so these things all kind of, um, were seen as kind of elevating uh, or coming up with new forms of, by which uh, China could put pressure on Taiwan. Just to
1: pick up on Taiwan a little bit, um... Taylor, um, think about, you know, last year, um, Tsai Ing-wen triumphing at the polls and, uh, you know, Taiwan kind of increasingly uh, identifying as as kind of independent in spirit, uh, if not, you know, does, does thinking about that and thinking about the next four years, and you talked about the Trump administration's kind of policy shift of really heightening the status of ties with Taiwan and highlighting it. We're, 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 what's the way forward? Is, is this kind of the neck, are we heading towards a kind of US-China showdown over Taiwan or do you think that a modus vivendi of sorts can be reached?
0: So I don't think we're heading towards a US-China showdown over Taiwan, but I think we're gonna go through a very significant period of readjustment. Uh, As the US, I think under the administration will continue uh, certainly with, I think the thrust of some of the policies that were adopted uh, in the Trump administration. And so we saw this. uh, In Tony Blinken's uh, testimony as part of the nomination process, where he uh, came up very clearly in support of Taiwan. And we saw this. With uh, Taiwan's representative to the United States, Kim being formally invited to participate in, in, in the inauguration, or to be invited uh, to participate in the inauguration, which had never uh, happened before at least uh, in that way. Although Taiwan had sent delegations in the past, but not for this sort of that to be led by the sitting representative, as I understand it. And so, clearly, I think um, as concern about uh, China grows in the United States, uh, there's also concern about what this means for Taiwan, which I think will. I'll uh, lead to uh, a deepening of, of the US-Taiwan uh, relationship. But uh, areas where we might see uh, progress in the coming four years might be through the negotiation of a free trade agreement. Uh, it's still not clear uh, if uh, the Biden administration will continue um, with uh, what happened in the closing days of the Trump administration by which uh, the, sort of the contact guidelines uh, sort of limiting the ways in which uh, uh, US officials and Taiwan officials Maintain an unofficial relationship will will be continued, or if it will be modified in some way. But certainly, I think that the as concern in the U.S. grows uh, regarding China, I think that leads to a, a corresponding sort of increase in concern about what that means uh, for Taiwan's future. And one one core element of you know the Taiwan Relations Act is basically to ensure that uh, the outcome of of uh, Taiwan's uh, status right is is determined by the people of Taiwan and not uh, through uh, coercion. And so uh, this will, I think, receive uh, more attention. At the same time, right, the Biden administration um, has already mentioned the three communiques, uh, which I think are the most important uh, policy documents from China's perspective, because they contain elements of what the United States calls the one China policy, which is not the same thing as what China calls the one uh, China principle, but nevertheless, uh, I think go an important way to signaling right that the United States does not support uh, Taiwan's uh, pursuit of uh, formal uh, independence, uh, and that the United States will not uh, pursue formal uh, diplomatic recognition with Taiwan. Right? These are sort of core, I think, elements uh, that China uh, has watched closely, or will watch closely. Uh, we we did not really hear a lot, hear much about the three communiques in the Trump administration. I think you probably heard much more about the six assurances than we did about three communiques, and so the Biden administration, at least in, in some remarks that were released by a transition official, official when uh, Pompeo announced the change in contact islands, did sort of indicate right, that that uh, the U.S. was going to stick to this kind of traditional uh, framework uh, with which, uh, right, Taiwan is a, a part of, sort of how the U.S. interacts uh, with China. Uh, and so that if that is I think, the one element that will probably uh, not be changed, but that does leave a lot of room for a uh, kind of changes in the modalities by which uh, China and Taiwan uh, maintain what is really you know, quite a robust unofficial relationship, right? Taiwan is a significant uh, trading partner of the United States, I think number 10. Um, Taiwan is critical to some U.S. policies regarding kind of at least uh, coupling in the technology sphere that continues because of uh, this, the, the dominant role of Taiwan semiconductor, right? And so on and so forth. And so um, it's going to be a very interesting space uh, to watch. Uh, I, I do think that uh, a Biden administration. Will probably handle it with a bit more care than the Trump administration. I think with the Trump administration, one was never sure if changes in US policy that that were sort of promoting close relations with Taiwan were done because it was sort of in the best interests of Taiwan or uh, Taiwan US relations or if they were done because it was the way in which uh, uh, mainland china could be needled and provoked and um, sort of u.s displeasure with china could be registered right this is this is i think a concern that will be uh, greatly uh, uh, mitigated under a biden administration and so in some ways we may see a more um i don't want to use the word strategic but perhaps a more well thought through approach for how to um improve uh u.s relations with taiwan while remaining within sort of the general framework of the three communications
2: and the one China policy. Okay. Uh, well, as always, thank you, Taylor. Uh, thank you, John. And thanks again to the CREO Foundation for its support. And thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, you can learn more about NBR and our Maritime Awareness Project at nbr.org.
0: This podcast was produced by Ian Smith. Asia Insight theme music is by Laura Schwartz of Bell the Bayou. Website development was led by Sandra Moore. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.